The Lord be with you. Let us pray. Heavenly Father, may we see the glory of your redemption in the Holy Cross. And may we adore you for all that you are that we can comprehend. In the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. Amen. Be wary of people who have no heroes. They think too highly of themselves. Also be wary of people who have too many heroes. They may just be fools. It's our privilege today to worship Christ through the canticle talking about the Holy Cross. Today's Holy Cross Day. And one of my heroes is the late Billy Graham, who said this. He said, this was the last thing that he said publicly. I want to tell people about the meaning of the cross. Not the cross that hangs on the wall or around someone's neck, but the real cross of Christ. With all my heart, I want to leave you with the truth that he loves you and is willing to forgive you of all your sins. One of my personal heroes, a man who stayed centered on the, on the main point of the gospel on the cross his entire life. Did you know that the word worship and worthy actually have the same root? It's from Old English, and it means to give God or actually, it doesn't necessarily only pertain to God. That's only a modern usage. It means to give someone your whole being, all of your devotion. That's why in the old 1662 Book of Common Prayer at the wedding service, which Seth and Holly, who just celebrated their anniversary, used, we say, with my body I thee worship, as the rings are exchanged. With all my goods I thee and die. Why do we do that? seems blasphemous, but no, it's the old usage of the word. To give our whole selves, to give everything we have to someone else. Maybe a more modern word that we use would be adoration, right? Although even that has probably fallen out, to, out of usage. We use it around Christmas, right? Oh, come, let us adore him, we sing. We might use it also talking um, about our love for someone. He absolutely adores her, or she absolutely adores him, right? Perhaps we use it looking at politicians or statesmen, although I would say that, that uh, probably borders on being fool, a fool. But to adore someone is to give them honor, to give them dignity, to give them adoration. And St. Thomas Aquinas, back in the 16th century, writes this in his Summa Theologica. He says, when we talk about adoration to whom a person, to an honor to whom, which is given to a person, we honor or adore someone 
for two reasons. Number one, we adore or honor him or her for the person himself, for the person himself, for the qualities inherent in the person. Number two, we honor somebody for the cause of his being honored, right? So what does St. Thomas mean? Well, we can honor someone for their character. We can also honor someone for what they have done, right? So we might honor someone for their bravery, but we might honor a general specifically for a victory, right? For the cause of that. We don't adore much in our culture, and perhaps rightfully so, but when we do adore, we adore with our whole selves, and the only proper person who can fulfill that adoration, who can live up to that standard, is God, right? Because we think about it, do spouses let one another down? Yes. Do boyfriends and girlfriends let each other down? Yes, we might adore them. But do parents let us down? Yes. Do children let us down? Yes. You get the idea. Does God ever let us down? No. No. And so our proper adoration of God is seen here in today's canticle called the Dignus S. So I invite you to open with me to the supplementary canticles. This is page 84, canticle 6, the Dignus S in the Book of Common Prayer. And what's one of the first things you notice? That this canticle is taken from Holy Scripture. It's taken from Revelation in its entirety. It jumps around a little bit, but you're going to see why. If we look at this, what are we saying about God and our adoration of him? It starts out with this proclamation, right? Splendor and honor and kingly power are yours by right, O Lord our God. Not up for debate. Right? Are yours by right, O Lord our God. By right. First of all, why? This is God. God the Father. The Greek behind the word by right or worthy is axios, which means weight. That he bears the weight of this honor well. That dignity and worthiness is his and his alone. So jumping back to what St. Thomas Aquinas says, this is the first usage of the word adoration. To honor God the Father for who he is intrinsically. Who he is just because he is, right? Just because he is. He's worthy to receive splendor, honor, power. Another translation puts it that he's worthy, that splendor and honor and kingly power are yours by right. That's what the ESV says. He is the almighty and eternal but he's also worthy of adoration for what he's done. Look at the next line. For you created everything that is, and by your will they were created and have their being. Stop right there before we move on. This is the first part of the canticle. 
So God is worthy of these things because of who he is, but secondly, because of what he's done, the cause of his honor. Again, going back to St. Thomas, that second reason. Why? Because you created all that is, and by your will they were created and have their being. Well, what's that mean? Well, you know, you and I use the term create lightly. We'll say, I created this piece of art, or I'm a creative person. We actually don't use the term properly because you and I don't create anything. We never do. All we do is assemble things that are already created, whether it's a thought or, or a you know, piece of wood that's fashioned into a shelf or some paintings and some canvas which is woven, which is made into a piece of art. We don't create, properly speaking, anything. The only one who creates is God. God creates what theologians call ex nihilo, from nothing, there is something. In the beginning, there was nothing. Then all of a sudden, there's something. God has created all things. But the other problem with our idea of how God creates is actually that, that God doesn't just create, he maintains, right? So, you know, if you made a car and you put no oil in it and you ran it and you put no gasoline in it, what would happen with that car? It would very soon fall apart. But even that doesn't get to God's creation because scripture tells us that in him all things live and have their being. So what does that mean? That means that the being of God, his existence itself, holds creation up. Yes, there's natural processes. Yes, he put those things into order. But Get out of your mind the idea that God made a watch, turned the crank, and set it on the shelf. Some people think of creation that way, that the world's like this watch with natural systems. Yes, he has natu there are natural laws and natural systems, but God is behind every single moment of existence. If God were to think about you, you would poof, just disappear if he weren't to think about you. He extends his being to us in a very technical sense, his existence to us. Is that worth being adored for? Yes. If that's not worth being adored for, I don't know what is, right? But there's more, isn't there? What about the lamb? Look at the next line. And yours by right, O Lamb that was slain, for with your blood you've redeemed for God. Let's just stop there, because the next part gets complicated. Who is the Lamb that's being talked about here in Revelation chapter 5? Do you know? Hopefully you do. The Lamb is Jesus Christ himself. Tying back to the Old Testament sacrifice, Jesus is the sacrifice. It's one of the first things that St. John the Baptist says. He sees Jesus coming to him. St. John the Baptist, this is back in the Gospel of John, chapter 1, verse 29, and he says, Behold, the Lamb of God who takes away the sins of the world. We echo his words every Sunday at Holy Communion, don't we? Lamb of God, you take away the sins of the world. Have mercy on us. Jesus Christ, the second person of the Trinity, is the lamb that's being talked about here and honored as a person of God. 
For Jesus himself is God, but he's also the second person of a triune God, the Holy Trinity. God promises us to be both our creator and our redeemer. So Jesse read from Isaiah chapter 45 earlier, and we read chapter 45 verse 21 this. Declare and present your case. Let them take counsel. Who told this long ago? Who declared it of old? Was it not I, the Lord? And there is no other God besides me, a righteous God and a Savior. There is none besides me. Verse 22, turn to be saved. Turn to me, rather, to be saved. All the ends of the earth. For I am God and there is no other. What's God saying there? He's saying that he's promised by himself, he's sworn on himself, that he won't just create us and leave us to die in sin, but that he'll actually redeem us, he'll actually save us when we turn to him, if we turn to him. Right? This is most difficult because there's a righteous God here called which means a just God, and there's also a saving God here. And all of us deserve death. We don't deserve to be saved. So what's God going to do to make this happen? How can God swear on himself that he will maintain his justice on one hand and yet save a disobedient people on the other hand? The answer is, send his son, Jesus Christ. Send his son, Jesus Christ. So God will maintain his justice and his perfect holiness, but send someone else to take the wrath, to take the punishment, to take the judgment, however you want to look at it, on our behalf. And that's Christ. So what are we adoring here in this canticle when we say, And yours bride right, O Lamb that was slain, for with your blood you have redeemed for God. Let's continue. From every family, language, people, and nation, a kingdom of priests to serve our God. Who are the kingdom of priests? You. You. You are this kingdom of priests. By Jesus' blood, by the Lamb's blood, the Lamb has redeemed, notice the word, for God. For God. That seems kind of odd, doesn't it? What's being talked about here? The Son, Jesus the Son, has redeemed for God, God the Father, the just one, who is also loving because he sent the Son, by the way, has redeemed for God a kingdom of priests, from every family, language, people, nation, wide open to everybody, to everybody who believes in it. The word used here for redeem, and that's not a word that we use very often anymore either, is it? Is egerasis, and it means to redeem or purchase or ransom. So Jesus the Lamb 
redeems, purchases, or ransoms, however you want to look at it, you from your sins. By his death, he pays the cost. By the cross, he saves us. That's what we mean by that. But see what we're doing when we say that we're doing a bunch of shorthand, right? We're giving an abbreviation. By the cross, we say, and what does that mean? It means by Christ's sacrifice on the cross. By his blood, we have been redeemed. Jesus himself talks about this. We can say that God has brought us back for, bought us back for himself. We can also say that God the Father sent the Son to purchase us back from sin and the devil. Look at John, today's gospel, chapter 12, verse 31. The deacon Mark read for us. Now is the judgment of the world. Now will the ruler of the world be cast out. Who's the judgment on? Who's the prince of this world? Satan, the devil. The judgment is on him. But the judgment is also, the punishment rather, is on Christ. Look at verse 32. And I, when I am lifted up from the earth, will draw all people to myself. He said this to show by what kind of death he was going to die. And what's the crowd re crowd's reaction? That can't happen. That can't happen. If you're the Messiah, the Messiah is said to always be with us. They don't see the larger plan. But of course, we know the rest of the story, that Christ dies, is buried, rises again, and ascends to heaven and sends the Holy Spirit to be with his church the rest of time, to the end of the ages, when he will return. The Lamb is due glory, worship and praise, dominion and splendor, because he is God and because his obedience, even to death on a cross, is beyond something that we can comprehend. How does God come and die for me? Anyone who repents of his or her sins and turns to Christ can be saved and become part of that redeemed people, of that kingdom of priests. It, it's our privilege to worship him in this canticle as part of that redeemed people. That's where God the Holy Spirit enters into this. He's not named in this canticle, but he's assumed. The words of sinful, unregenerate men and women can mean nothing to God. Think about it. If a criminal who's disgraced comes to you on the street and he honors you with kind words and tells you how wonderful you are, his words are meaningless. It's just flattery. Who cares what he thinks? He's a criminal. He's a disgrace. But when someone who's successful, honorable, and of great character comes to you and does the same, what does that mean to you? It is a great honor because it's coming from an honorable person. It is that way with human beings, and it's also that way with God. Outside of God, our praise, honor, and splendor of him First of all, we don't know to give it. And second of all, if we do give it, it's meaningless because we're just disgraced criminals outside of the covenant. But by the cross, by the blood of the Lamb, 
The transformation is used and given to us. Do you see the terminology here is very intentional. Why are we a kingdom of priests? What do priests do? We, we uh, liturgically show it with our very presence, right? Sometimes I'm facing you. Hear the word of the Lord. Sometimes I'm facing the Lord. Lord, have mercy on us and incline our hearts to keep this law. What is the priest doing? He is interacting on our behalf. He is representing us to Christ and representing Christ to us. That's why we turn. Right? That's the physical symbol of that. Now, what does it mean when Revelation here says you are a kingdom of priests? You've been redeemed to be a kingdom of priests. What's that mean? Think about it for a minute. How do you emulate what I do up here? Or actually, it's the other way around. How do I put into corporate worship what you ought to be doing? Because that's actually what's going on in the liturgy. I'm representing you. I'm not just, I'm not your go-between. I'm representing you. Okay? How are you a kingdom of priests? Anybody? You bring God into the world, yeah. So, so just as the priest turns and he addresses you and says, the peace of the Lord be with you and with your spirit. What's going on there? Right? I'm wishing God's peace upon you, proclaiming it upon you. So you, as you go out into the world, are bringing that news to those around you. You are representative of Christ himself, saying, I love you. I died for you. Come be part of the kingdom of priests. Come be part of what we're doing, right? You're representing Jesus Christ himself that way. Why? Because the Holy Spirit is in you. God himself is in you. So you have that power and you have that duty. Go ye therefore into the world. About the other way. How are you a priest the other way? What are you doing here today? You're worshiping. You're worshiping. What is worship? It's giving our whole selves to God. You as a kingdom of priests are worshiping because you are part of that kingdom of priests. You are giving God honor and glory. And so this canticle here is saying nothing less than worthy is Christ. Why? Because of who he is, but also because of the great thing that he has done for us. That we aren't just in good relationship with him, which is a really important thing, right? But that we're a kingdom of priests. That we represent him to the world and the world to him. Why does he choose to do that? I mean, I look at myself. Compared to God, I'm a scumbag. But in Christ Jesus, I've been redeemed. 
as a kingdom, part of this kingdom of priests. And so are you, friends. So do you see, in praying this canticle itself, you are offering to God worthy praise for who he is and what he has done for you. And notice, where does this come from? Because we've ignored it so far. This comes from Revelation chapter 4. Open, if you would, with me to Revelation chapter 4. And we're not going to do an excursus of this, but, or an exposition of this, but I want you to see it. Okay? Revelation chapter 4. Who is it that is saying these things? Who's saying them in Revelation chapter 4? I'll read it to you. And this I looked, and behold, a door standing open in heaven, and the first voice which I heard speaking to me, like a trumpet, said, Come up here, and I will show you what must take place after this. At once I was in the Spirit, and behold, a throne stood in heaven, and one seated on the throne, and he who sat there had the appearance of Jasper and Carnelian, and around the throne was a rainbow that had appeared of an, of an emerald, that had the appearance of an emerald, rather. Around the throne were 24 thrones, and seated on the thrones were 24 elders clothed in white garments with, a golden, with golden crowns on their head. Let's skip down here. Verse 9. And whenever the living creatures give glory and honor and thanks to him who's seated on the throne who lives forever and ever, the 24 elders fall down before whom, him who's seated on the throne and worship him who lives forever and ever. They cast their crowns before the throne, saying, today's canticle, worthy are you, worthy are you, splendor and honor and kingly power. There's different translations of it, but it all means the same thing. Who are the 24 seated around the throne? Theologians don't know for sure, but most people think this represents the 12 tribes of Israel and the 12 apostles. God's whole people, God's redeemed people from both the Old and the New Testament. And what are they doing as they say this? They're taking off their thrones and throwing them at the foot of the throne. Taking off their crowns and throwing them at the foot of the throne. Let me ask you, where did they get those crowns? God. So whose crowns are they throwing at the throne? God. God is so pleased to involve us in his worship. He doesn't just redeem us. He doesn't just save us from hell. But he wants us to be a kingdom of priests. And he gives us the ability to bring him glory. To give him his right. To cast our crowns upon the floor before his throne. That gives him great joy. It's a terribly inefficient thing. There's nothing to do with accomplishing something in the sense of accomplishing a task. It has everything to do with accomplishing a people, with redeeming a people, with bringing a people to him to glorify him. Christ descended from heaven, leaving aside all of the things that are rightfully his, Philippians 2 tells us, to come die 
a terrible death on the cross for us. That This Revelation passage is just enacting that once again. So friends, you are a kingdom of priests. In the cross of Christ I glory, towering over the wrecks of time, we sang coming in. Our creation, our life, our cross, the cross rather, our redemption, and our worship are all gifts back to the King. And so to him who sits upon the throne and to Christ the Lamb, be worship and praise, dominion and splendor forever and evermore. Amen? And as Billy Graham finished his final thought, he said this, he said, With all my heart, I want to leave you with the truth that Jesus loves you and is willing to forgive you of your sins. Sin is a disease of the human heart. There is no other way of salvation except through the cross of Christ. And that is why we adore it. Amen.